Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 30. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. This week, next week, and the following week is kind of wrapped down for me, but I'm going to be preaching from some things I've been working on, so I'm not in a series of any kind, but I think it fits very appropriate to the culture in which we're now living in, and so I'm going to have to make some adjustments. I was visiting my church the other day, and I had to buy coffee because uh, the coffee bar sells coffee. And it just made me come back and appreciate. Mr. Holly, thank you for buying my coffee every Sunday morning that I've been here at Greenville. Every Sunday, he goes up and says, your coffee's ready. I paid for it. And so I've even thought we may need to take a love offering to restore back some of that money to you, but we'll, we'll see about that. But thank you. All right. In 1970, a book came out. Some of you may know of it. Some of you have probably never heard of it, but it's called The Late Great Planet Earth. It had a profound effect on the church during that time. I was a junior in high school when it came out. In fact, six years later, seven years later, when I'm at Southwestern Seminary, I knew that book better than I knew what was in the Bible. I had it dog-eared, underlined. It had quite an impact on everything that we did. And what it was about was that the second coming of Christ was coming. It was going to be at any time now in the late 70s. And really, if you figure, sit down and we would do that, We'd figured out it had to be about 1983, Christ was going to come. It would fulfill everything that he had written in the book, and it didn't happen. It was a great book. I loved it. Hal Lindsey is an amazing guy. I've not met him, but his uh, producer of his TV show was the producer of my radio program in San Antonio. He worked half his time for uh, 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 Hal Lindsey, the other half he worked for Salem Communication. And so he became mine. And so I, I was able to learn a lot about him. I said, what's his view now? He said, well, he still thinks he's got it right. He just missed the date somewhere along the way. So I want to talk about, are we in the days of Noah? Before I finish, I don't know. But I'm going to raise the issue. But I'm going to deal with the question today is, is because I look at it a little bit different than everybody else does. In the 70s, all my friends in high school and college, and especially in college days, that book scared us to death. It should have, if it was true, should have given us anticipation Christ is coming, but we're 21, 22, 23, just getting to start life. But yet it scared us. In fact, Jody and Kitty, two of my best friends, I was in their wedding, Jody was in my wedding. Uh, we grew up together, we hunted together, we swam in the rivers together. He and Kitty decided in the 70s when they got married they would not have children because they didn't want to bring them into a time frame that would mean um, Christ is coming at any moment, so they thought it best not to have kids. And then it didn't happen. And when they tried to later have children, she was not, Kitty was not able to have kids. And so they adopted, and they got a great son, and life has turned out good for them. But I've always remembered that. But I know several other people who made decisions that kind of hurt their future later because they thought it was over with. So I've always been of a kind of a different mind when it comes to this. That if I think Christ is coming, I'm probably more of the line of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was asked one time, if Jesus is coming tomorrow, what do you do today? And Martin Luther said, I plant a tree. Sounds like a crazy answer, but it's not. He's going to live fully this day in anticipation. 
So I'm going to be challenging you guys because I think we're in for an interesting 2024. Everything I look at and see, this is going to be an unbelievable year. I have no idea. I'm not the, a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet. I'm a son of a, a Baptist deacon, and that doesn't get even a cup of coffee except when Mr. Holly's around. So, so let's look at our passage today. Stand with me as we read verses 26 through 30 of Luke 17. And here's what it says. As just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage. Until the day Noah entered the ark, the floods came and destroyed them all. It is a, it, in the same way it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. Fathers, we look at this today as we look at how we respond to the potential of the days of Noah. Give us insight and wisdom, strengthen our faith, make us strong in Christ, and be glorified in all that we do and say. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This, you know, when I was still pastor and I didn't have time to do much of anything except all the different jobs and responsibilities that I had, but since I've been retired, this is one of the subjects I've been working on. And so I've got pages upon pages of notes. So uh, I hope you enjoy your supper tonight. It'll be probably be a little cold by the time we get out of here, but we'll see how this goes. Now, I'll keep it short and quick. All right. So what was happening during the days of Noah? If, if the coming of Christ is like the days of Noah, will be just like the days of Noah, what was happening? Well, our passage is very clear uh, when we notice that life was normal. How do I know that? They're eating and drinking. They're just sitting down having a meal. It's kind of like all of us do. After church today, some of us go home for lunch. Some of us go out to eat for lunch. We just do that. It's part of life. When we get together with my family, the Friday night, my son came in from Midland, and my daughter called and says one of the grandkids has had the flu all week, and he just wants to get out. He's feeling better now. So we, we went to uh, Kincaid's and had hamburgers at Kincaid's in the western part of Fort Worth. Had a great time just laughing, cutting up, and enjoying life. That's what it's like. In the days of Noah, people were just sitting down and having their meal and going about life as they always did. He said that marriages were taking place, which tells me something. No fear of the future. No anticipation of anything going wrong. Young couple anticipating life together, getting ready, coming before the altar, giving their lives to each other. They're going to have a great life together. No expectation that everything was coming to an end within a few moments, a few days. It was an anticipation of a great future. That's what was happening during the days of Noah. Jesus not only ties the day of Noah, but he ties it into lots. We learn a little bit more because those are both very similar. What else were they doing during the days of Noah and the days of Lot? They were buying and selling. They were doing business. They were making investments. A friend of mine just sold some land in West, Fort Worth, West Lubbock. He's, he's going to make a couple million dollars off the selling of his farmland, and he's already planning for what he's going to buy with it. He just built a new home. He told his wife, let's rebuild it again. 
They just moved in four months ago. Didn't like a couple things. So he said, let's just build another one. And we'll buy another farm. And we'll do this. And we're going to do that with the money. My friend Russell has heart problems, but he's not worried about all of his heart problems. He's just anticipating life going on. You got the same thing going on. They're planting crops. Crops is at least a good six to seven months anticipation out. Living in the panhandle as I did, cotton and corn went in in the late spring or sometimes a little early spring depending on the weather. And then come September, October, November, we'd pull the corn first, the cotton would come second. So when you're planting, you're anticipating a harvest. Why are you even planting? Because a farmer needs the money from what he's going to make so he can live in the next year. They're anticipating nothing going on. They're building new buildings. Nobody builds a new building if you're about to get a flood. Nobody's going to build a new building if fire is about to destroy everything inside. They see absolutely nothing. They anticipate nothing. In fact, what I see when I read this is an anticipation of a great future, looking ahead, not noticing anything that's going on around them. So that is what's one thing. And that's what we see around us. If we are entering the days of Noah, life goes on, buildings are going up, people are doing business, there are negotiations going on, there are weddings that are happening, babies being born, everybody's just living like we've always lived. That was no different in the days of Noah. But the second thing that I want you to notice is not so much in our passage, but we have to jump back into Genesis 6 of what was going on during the days of Noah. So what we need to know is this, the wickedness of man had become great. There was a depravity and evil that was running through the world at levels that had never been there before. In fact, I was watching on YouTube this week Seth Dillion. Seth is the editor-in-chief of Babylon B. Now, if you know what Babylon B is, you'll understand. If you don't, I don't have time to get into the background of it. But they were interviewing him. It's a satirical magazine. He comes up with some, and it's religious-oriented. He comes up with some of the craziest headlines that you'll ever read. And, and a lot of them are funny when you see the headlines of the little articles that they put out. But he said what's strange now to him is they sit in their offices and they sit there and they debate over what satirical story to do next. And they're watching some of their headlines come true. Things that were never supposed to ever happen. The craziness of the world we live. He says people now are not even finding things that we write funny because they're already happening. And they're happening around us. He said, there is an evilness that has pervaded the land that we used to make fun of some of it. It now is normal for a lot of people. That's the days of Noah. Bible says during the days of Noah, every intent of the heart of man was continuously evil. And in Genesis 6, 12, the earth became corrupt because of it. When people are motivated by selfishness and all the other possibilities of evilness within the heart, it will corrupt everything going on. I think we see that within our government today. There's a corruption level that has exceeded a level we probably have never seen. It's always been there, but it seems to have risen its head even more. I watch things on the border because I talk to my friends still in San Antonio of what's happening on the border. I still have some friends in Washington I talk with. It's amazing what I'm seeing unfolding, but during the days of Noah, that's what was happening. There was a corruptness. And when you have this wickedness and intent of thought not being good and you reach a corruptness, you eventually get to what was going on there in the days of Noah, verses 11 and 13, you get violence. That's Romans chapter 1 unfolding when you get to the last God gave them up. Violence comes out of 
all the anger and frustration and everything else that's going on. And I tell you what, we're seeing that to this day. I even find myself sometimes in situations out in public when I'm walking around, I'm kind of watching, make sure, because I've watched too many of the videos on the internet, I guess, to see that people suddenly getting their lights punched out and other things that are happening. And and every night I turn the news on, it's been this way for a long time. It seems even worse in the Dallas Metroplex. Another young kid being shot and killed out in the street. It's happening over and over. I know four and five million people live in the area, but still that becomes a focal point of all that is going on. We hear gunfire. I live in an exclusive neighborhood. I was very fortunate to get a, a, a town home or a little garden home in the midst of that nice neighborhood. But we have gunfire. My grandson had a bullet enter his second floor room gun gunfire that goes on. We, hear, we heard it the other night, another four or five shots. We hear that on a regular basis around us. Violence starts to come up. So a lot of times with what we're seeing today, it's easy for me to say, I think we're entering the days of Noah because of the violence level we see throughout the world. But there's a third thing that comes to the mind. The third thing that we pick up when we look at Genesis 6 and then we go to Jude and 2 Peter, which deal with the days of Noah and the days of Lot, is that there is an immorality, sexual immorality, that becomes rampant during their times. We know through Genesis 6, the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men, the giants were being born, the Nephilims. And I take that from my viewpoint, the sons of God were some type of angelic beings who came down to earth, had relationships with the women here on earth. The Nephilims came. After the flood, they still came. There was still some kind of impact and influence. Even after everybody was wiped out, they were here. In fact, when Israel goes in to take the promised land, part of the responsibility when they were told to wipe out towns was to take out the Nephilims who live within that town. God was trying to clear house of all the Nephilims during that time when Israel went in. There was some kind of immorality that was going on that was beyond anything that should have ever been happening. And then we know from Jude that they were indulging in sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desires. They were defiling the flesh and they were rejecting authority. Peter gives similar insights. They had eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed. They promised freedom to everybody, but they were all enslaved by their corruption. Well, you and I don't have to look around very far to know that immorality has gone to a level in our country that's beyond anything. It's always, always been around, but not the levels in which we see nowadays. And the craziness of it. There was a guy yesterday, I think it was yesterday, that won a golf tournament. A man who won a woman's golf tournament yesterday. Saw a picture of him. He didn't look like a woman I'd ever seen before. He looked like a man. And he won the tournament. And I'm going, who in their mind is crazy enough to allow that stuff? Well, you've got all kinds of this stuff going on around us. So I'm going to stop back and go, you know what? Kind of looking like the days of Noah. We could go with wars and rumors of war. Well, now there's very few rumors of war. We've got war in, in Europe. We've got war in the Middle East. We may have war in the, in the Far East. Who knows where else it might unfold. It'd be easy to say that. But there's a fourth thing I want to add to the days of Noah. 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, In the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They'll forbid marriage, and they forbid eating food created by God. Now, when I've always read 1 Timothy 4.1, I never knew what to do with forbidding marriage and eating food created by God. I don't even know how you explain that. But more and more, when I watch the World Economic Forum and some other stuff, and they're wanting to get rid of farmers, they're wanting to get rid of cattle, and they're wanting to get rid of all this stuff, I'm going to have to say, are we getting close? 
This is craziness of all that is going on around us. So what you need to know, though, is as we get to the end, there will be a falling away from the faith. In fact, the matter, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, before we are gathered to him, you can call that the rapture. It's a different phrase in the Greek. But as we are being gathered to him, two things have to happen before we are gathered to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, the first one is an apostasy, a falling away. But I'm not so certain we're seeing that, at least in America. I know we've seen it in Europe. A real apostasy where people suddenly now have no interest in these types of things like you and I have gathered today to be able to worship and lift our voice to the Lord. Uh, people will no longer have a love of the truth. And I think we're long past that one in our country in this postmodern age. So I now understand why a lot of my friends are writing books right now saying that we're at the end and it's over with. Christ is coming and you and I need to just kind of get ready. I'm not ready to write my book because I don't know if it's the end. I know it's similar. I know we have some appearances of what the days of Noah are like in the day in which we live. But I'm also reminded, Scripture says, by day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels, not the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So I know we're kind of like that, but when it's going to be, only the Father knows. I don't even understand how the Son doesn't know, but we're told that. Only the Father knows. And we're also told in Matthew that Jesus said this, for this reason you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will come. That speaks volumes to me. It's why I'm, so, I'm, I'm afraid to put a real time frame down on anything because it said he'll come when I'm not thinking. I had a youth director. We were kind of kidding around in <clears throat> the office as we would do in our office. Everybody got along good, and we'd joke with each other. Sometimes you might have thought we didn't even like each other because the way we cut at each other and stuff. But we had a blast together, and we, I've missed that part of being in retirement is being with all these different people. But we were, he was saying one time, you know what it's got to be like up in heaven? The father's looking at the son and says, okay, it's about time to go. We're gonna, you're going to go, and oh, they just guessed again. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, they're guessing again. Wait a minute. It's funny. But I don't know. I have, God's got his plan and sovereignty. He's going to come exactly when he wants him to come. But it's, what I get out of this, this is going to be at a time when anyone maybe least expects it. Well, you say, we are not any help today. You could have given me an exact time frame so we could get this down. We could get our calendars out and we can put it in. Okay, Thursday, April 17th, 3 o'clock, Christ is coming. But you want to know something that's above my pay grade. It's way above my pay grade. So the question now becomes, what am I supposed to do? The world looks like it is falling apart around me. And that's really the gist of what I wanted to do today. How do you live when the world goes crazy? How are you and I supposed to face? Well, Jesus is going to say this in the next chapter of Matthew after he gave, you don't know when. He's going to say, but be on alert. So then my question now becomes, how do I be alert? How do I get ready for entering the days of Noah or walking through the days of Noah or just walking through life if we're not there? Well, I think the best way to figure out how to walk through the days of Noah seems like common sense to me. Let's look at Noah. What did he do? How did he live during his days? And you got to know something. Noah is on a level 
that nobody in his day ever achieved. In fact, we've learned from Ezekiel. He said, even though these three men were be in your midst today, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in your midst by their own righteousness. They couldn't deliver. They could only deliver themselves. They could not deliver you during what you're going through. But Noah, Daniel, and Job, three amazing men, three men who lived through horrible experiences in this world. Three men who lived through horrible experiences in this world. The first one, Noah, the destruction of the world. We can't even fathom what it was like when he stepped out of the boat. That's why I don't give him a, a, a very difficult time later after he had farmed for a little bit and made some wine out of his grapes that he got drunk one night. Talk about PTSD from all he had been through. I'm serious. We, we can't fathom what it would be like to walk out to the total silence and quietness of a world and nobody being around except his uh, three sons and their wives and his, his wife. Noah saw the world destroyed, the after effects of trying to bring it back. And he lived a long time after that. He, li- he was alive during the days of Abraham. Ten generations later, he was still on this earth. There are even ancient writings that even have they knew each other supposedly. Now, whether there's biblical or not, I don't know. But he went through a lot going through that. We know Daniel went through a horrible experience. He went through the destruction of Jerusalem, probably the death of his family, exiled into a foreign land that was total opposite of anything he'd ever been trained and taught in his life and never to go home ever again. You know, a few weeks ago, I went home to southeast Texas, to Orange. I don't get there back, but ever so often, maybe once every five, six years, my brother lives there. And so I went down to see him, and I went. It just kind of felt good to go home for a day or two. I have no desire to go back there, but it's home. It always will be home, Orange, Beaumont, Port Arthur. He could never go home. He could never, ever know his family again, never saw them, probably never heard anything more. When he'd hear something, Jerusalem was obliterated, destroyed. I, I can't fathom what it would be like to know that my homeland had completely been obliterated off the face of the earth and everybody scattered and most of the people I knew had died. That's what Daniel went through. And I think the one who had the worst life of all was Joel, Job. He lost 10 kids. I can't even fathom that. Two of mine were nearly killed in accidents and we had to get through it and they came back and they're fine today but I've been on the edge but I've, but I've walked as pastor with those who've lost children it's the most devastating difficult thing you'll ever go through he lost 10 and not just over a time period all at once and then he lost the respect of his wife which he desperately would have needed during these days he, his three friends after a week or so with him suddenly are giving him a hard time and saying you must be something wrong with you you must have done something wrong all of his property pretty much was lost all of his wealth his wealth would have disappeared with that property that was taken his health went downhill dramatically whenever satan was allowed to take his health he lost the respect of his community and his enemies were emboldened by everything that took place during that day and you read Job, it's a, it's a tough read about all that that man went through. These three men went through unbelievable difficult. So we could learn from all three men, but I want to learn today from Noah because he's the only one who walked through the days of Noah. So what does he have to teach me? I'm taking this from Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor with God. The word favor in the Hebrew is grace. Noah had the grace of God upon him. 
Do you know how you and I walk through these days, if we're in the days of Noah, or if we're just walking through just average days? We walk by grace. We spent this entire last year going through Ephesians and 2 Timothy in order to teach us who Christ was, what he's accomplished in our lives, the impact and influence it should have, how you and I should walk through all of that. But when you get into that and you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it says, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was influenced by the world. I was influenced by Satan. I was influenced by the age. I was a child of wrath. I was dictated by my lust of my flesh and the lust of my mind. And were by nature, I was a child of wrath. If it stopped right there, I have no hope. I live like the rest of the world does. But verse 4, I've always loved. But God, rich in his mercy, great love which he loved us, he made us alive. And you find the first statement in Ephesians 2, around 5 or 6, for by grace have you been saved. The key to walking through the days of Noah, if we're in them, or down the future if they were to show up, is that first of all, you better have experienced the grace of God in Christ. Do you know him? Have you come to faith and trust in Christ? He had experienced God's favor. There were some other people in the New Testament and Old Testament that would experience that. Moses found favor, found grace. Luke says, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor. God had showed his blessings upon him and it showed him grace. You and I are people who have been graced by the Father in heaven, and that makes us the most blessed people in all the world. Second thing was not only grace, faith. We're learning in Ephesians, we did that last year. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God. Faith is a demonstration of God's grace given to us. Noah was a man of faith. It said this in Hebrews eleven seven By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things he did not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. By doing that, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah was a man of faith. Faith is assurance things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen. Fits exactly what it said to about him in eleven seven. He was warned by God about things not yet seen. What had not yet been seen? Rain, flood, those things had never happened. The judgment of God poured out in the entire world had never happened. But God spoke to him and he knew something. I love he, uh, Romans 4 because Romans 4 tells me what my, what my faith should be like. My faith should be like Abraham's, that when God speaks it, I believe it because God said it. God told him there would be a flood and this man, not acting crazy or anything else, in reverence went to work over 100 years, preparing an ark for the, what God had promised would happen. He prepared with respect that ark. He knew if God said it, it was true. And I think he already had a little bit of insight. Not only did God speak to him, but if you back up a couple of generations, there's a man by the name of Enoch. Enoch, 65 years, at the age of 65, had a child. Now, I know they lived a lot longer back there, but if I'd had a child at 65, oh, poor kid. <laughs> poor kid. It was tough enough when I brought Stephanie home. And I, I never forget walking in the house with Stephanie. We lived over by the seminary in a little cracker box, little wooden shack. They used to be the, uh, where the troops would stay. They brought them in and just set them up, and the floors would collapse on them. But that's where we lived in seminary. And we went in, and we sat down 
right after Thanksgiving, a couple days. I am scared to death. And Jan says, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she starts sobbing. I nearly went into panic because I sure didn't know what to do. <laughs> well, Enoch knew something. He had a son. What's his name? Methuselah. Methuselah. Hebrew can be translated, when he dies, it'll come. When did he die? Year of the flood. He lived 969 years. Not so much because God wanted him to have a good long life. He was there because God was giving time for everything to unfold according to his promise. Can you imagine the conversation between Enoch, Methuselah, and Noah over all that God had been speaking during that time frame? So not only God speak to Noah, he had his word. You and I are more blessed. We have the word of God. And I only got a couple more weeks with you guys, but this much I want you to know. You better become good students of the word. You stay in it. So that nobody, when it gets to the end, when there becomes apostasy and people begin to fall away, you'll not be led astray. Because you're not going to be influenced by others. You're influenced only by what God's word said. And we stand on a sure foundation. Noah was a man of faith. And if God said it, he did it. So if we're entering the days of Noah, you know what? We need God's grace and we need to walk by faith. But then there's another thing that Noah had. And in Genesis 6, 9, he was a righteous man. A righteous man and just a good man which we all should be who know Christ, good men and women, that we live our lives, we struggle and strive to be all that God's called us to be. You know, I kind of sat in and listened in on the Sunday school lesson a little bit. Sorry, teachers, I was listening in and stuff here earlier. But it, it was a good lesson. I enjoyed it. But we're talking about the flesh and the spirit battle. It's a struggle sometimes for this righteousness, but it's a good struggle and it's worth the fight. To be able to fight your way all of your life doing that which is right and good because of the grace that you now have in Christ. I have lived long enough now to know that, you know, you make a dumb mistake, you pay for it, and sometimes the consequences are there. But when you walk right, the blessings are beyond imagination. He was a man of righteousness, and I think that's important. And I want to throw a point in because he was called by Peter a preacher of righteousness. You know, when the culture totally falls apart, it's very easy to want to do this. I'm going to throw my hands up and quit. You know, I, I got to enter the battle on a national level for a couple, three years and thought I'd done some good, but I'm not wondering now if I did much good of any kind. And now I kind of think we didn't do much of any kind because it's gotten 10 times worse than anything that I would have imagined. But you know one thing that Noah did? I've always found this fascinating about him. He was preaching righteousness to those people who were listening. Did he impact it? Probably not, but he didn't stop from explaining the great truths of what is right and in good, and he preached it. Josephus says this, the great historian of the Jewish people, Noah was displeased at the behavior of the people and tried to persuade them to change their disposition and their act for the better. Now, that is not biblical, but it is in the history books through the Jewish traditions and everything else. I can believe there's some truth to that because Peter called him a preacher of righteousness. So we're to be righteous people walking through the age but not afraid to speak the truth. When you, when you enter an evil day, Ephesians 6, we studied that. We enter an evil day. What are we supposed to do? Stand firm in the armor of God. 
which is in Christ, what he has done for us. And we are to walk with the gospel of peace. But when we get there, we face whatever there is standing. But one weapon we have is what? We have a weapon. It's not just defensive. What's the weapon? The sword. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But it's not the word logos in the Greek. It's the word rhema. It is the spoken word. It is during evil days that you and I should not be afraid to speak the truth. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. If we're going to have an impact and still be salt and like like we're called to be, if we're in the days of Noah, we have to do what? We have to have experienced the grace of God. We need to walk by faith in all of his promises. We need to live good and decent, righteous lives based on what Christ has done for us. But also do not be afraid to stand for what you know to be truthful. You never know the impact and influence. It may not affect anyone, but you will have done what God called you to do. And then you look at Noah in 6-9. He was blameless and he walked with God. You wouldn't have found much of a fault with him. Was he a perfect man? No, there are no perfect men. If anyone says he's perfect, John says he's a liar and the truth's not in him. What we're supposed to do is when we do mess up, we, we confess our sin and he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Noah was not a perfect man, but he was a good man and you'd have had a hard time finding it. But not only that, he walked with God. Same thing happened when Enoch got the message. Whatever happened at Enoch, age 65, the birth of his son, something impacted the man for the next 300 years. He walked with God. And that's what you and I have been called to do. No matter what happens around us, you and I are to be faithful. We are to get up every day and live our lives for Christ. I will say this, he had the same qualities of Job. He had the same qualities that Daniel had blameless, unscathed by others. There's no skeletons in his closet. He gets up and he lives and he walks. You know what I find fascinating? Because pretty much during Noah's day, he's the only one that walks with God. I'm going to put that his family probably does too because they are with him, but the rest of the world will be destroyed, which tells me something really important. He did not allow the evil influences of his day to impact his life. He was not morally corrupted by an immoral society, and anger did not dictate his life by all that he saw around him. It is very easy today to allow the world to pull us down. And it doesn't take much. Back when I was a youth director, we'd be doing some Bible studies. My wife did this one time. See, we were trying to talk, tell, be careful who your friends are. If you pick bad friends, they can drag you down fast. You're going to say, well, I'm trying to help them up. So Jan had me stand in a chair. And so I'm standing in a chair. I'm 6'1", 200 and some odd pounds. And I was in real strong in those days. I was young and stuff. And so I was standing there. My wife's five foot, 100 pounds. Who won when we had a tug of war with me in the chair and her on the ground? She did every single time. She could pull me off the chair just like that. I could never pick her up. Guys, it's very easy to let this culture bring you down. It's very easy to look at the news and get so frustrated and angry, it's not even funny. But you want to know something? Don't be dictated by that. You get up every day, and you know what you do? You give thanks. You've been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You're the most blessed person. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have Christ in you, the hope and the certainty of glory. You have a good finish coming. 
The people around Noah did not have a good finish coming for them. Judgment was coming. The people around Lot did not have a good finish coming for them. They had judgment coming. But Lot, Noah, Daniel still standing at the end of his life doing the most amazing things and accomplishing great things for God. You and I are called to be faithful. And so as Noah walked with God, you walk with God. As Noah did not allow evil influences his day to impact his life, do not allow the evil influences around you to impact your life. And Noah is not corrupted by the moral corruption around him. Don't let what's going on around you, the moral the immoral corruption around us, don't let it dictate you. He was not angry. You don't be angry. You rejoice. For this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I close with this today. Peter gave us the final answer. When you read 2 Peter, it's all in preparation for when Christ comes. He tells us of our faith and what Christ has accomplished in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. In chapter 2, he warns us there will be false teachers and false prophets who will do whatever they can to lead people astray. That could be a reference to the apostasy. And he gives a detailed description of these very immoral men who try to lead people astray. In chapter 3, he's going to say this, the world will mock you because you believe that Christ is coming. The world will make fun of you because you hold to these truths. But you don't be shaken by that. God's not slow to his promises. For a day, the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. But he's going to come. And when he does, everything will be destroyed by fire. And he'll create a new heaven and new earth. That's what Peter is, his final words, that he left the church before he's going to be executed. And he closes with this. Therefore, beloved, since you look for all of these things to unfold this way, you be diligent, be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. You're followers of Christ. Look for the coming of Christ. But be diligent. Be zealous, be eager, work hard. That's what that means. It's an imperative command that you're at peace. You're at peace. I love Psalms 23. But it became a favorite of mine. I did it at every funeral I ever did because it mainly re-requested. But it became a favorite one day. Jim Pauling, one of my deacons, was dying of cancer. Louise, his wife, called and said, Pastor, would you and the deacons come up to the intensive care unit? And would you have prayer with Jim? He probably won't know you're here, but would you come? And Pastor, would you anoint with oil? Let's see if God will hear a prayer and give me Jim back. And so all the deacons of Village Parkway Baptist Church and myself, we went up there. We anointed with oil. We were about to pray. And G.W. Bandy, I, I did his funeral one year ago. I said, Pastor, can I read a passage first? So I said, yes. And he opened Psalms 23, one of the finest men I've ever known. And he goes, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he stopped. He looked at it and said, there's really no need to read the rest of it. If he's your shepherd, the rest of it follows. I have never forgotten that. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's peace. Contentment. Knowing that your God will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will watch over you. Then the second thing, be spotless. <clears throat> be without fault. 
Now, if you're still raising children, they will point all your faults out to you at one time or the other. Learn from that. But work at being what God's called you to be. It's a struggle. I find it a struggle still at 70. My grandkids give me a hard time about my driving. I said I was well trained by my dad. Then I realized, you know, I need to be a little more careful in how I drive with the grandkids in the car. I'm teaching them bad habits. That spotless thing we all have to work at. But do it. But the very fact we can work at it is the sign of God's grace. We're not controlled by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the mind where we're slaves to it anymore. We do have the freedom to move forward. And then lastly, blameless. I close with this passage. I'm doing my, y'all are doing read through the Bible and other that stuff. That's what I've always done. But this year I'm doing different. This year I'm reading Zephaniah for January every single day over and over and over. It's my least understood Old Testament book that probably haven't spent enough time in. So I've been reading it over and over every single day. And I've been fascinated. But listen to what the final word is as Zephaniah starts. God says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. I will stop there and just say that that's reversed from how he created. So in a backward kind of way, everything will be removed. Along with all stumbling blocks and along with all wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. And then in 7 of chapter 1, you people of God be silent hush is the word hush before the Lord your God the day of the Lord is near I do know the day of the Lord is near whether in the days no I don't know I am not smart enough to know that and he's not given me any insight and wisdom but I do know this he's called me to be faithful and he's called you to be faithful and he's made it possible that you and I can be faithful by his grace and his mercy let's be people who trust God let's be people who walk with God Let's people who, be, who strive to be all that he's called us to be. And let us be people who are not afraid of speaking the truth when it is needed to be done. And if we were in the days of Noah, I know something. Noah was rescued through the judgment. You and I are going to be rescued through the judgment. We're going to go be with him. And I look forward to that day when the trumpet sounds, the voice of the archangel shouts, and it is time to go home. I no longer live in fear of that as a 20-year-old. I look in anticipation, I guess, now as a 70-year-old. But I have some things I want to do. Not only want to see the Lord, and I want to see him in all of his glory, but I want to see mom and dad again, healthy and strong. I want to see dad's brother walking. I want to see the great saints of the church that I've known, from Tommy Downs to Ernest Green uh, to Jim Pauline to all the men that I've known through my life. I want to see them. I want to see Mary Sumner, one of the greatest women I've ever encountered in ministry, her and her husband. That's what I want to see. I want to see my kids have made it. My grandkids, I've baptized every one of them. And I'm praying that their faith is strong. We will be together in glory. I hope that happens exactly like I'm thinking but I just know this, even if it's not exactly how I'm thinking, it's going to be good. It's going to be amazing. So let's not be frightened if we enter the days of Noah, whether we're there or not, I don't know. I can make it that way, but I don't know. But I know this, he holds the future, and when it's time, he's going to tell his son, you go, and we're going to be with him. And I may not see some of you in after two more weeks, 
But we're going up in the air, we'll look around and say, hey, you're in Greenville. I saw you when we were in Greenville. I said, you're that old man who came to preach to us. Yeah, well, good to see you. The preacher made it. That's really good. <laughs> Join with me as we pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the privilege and honor you give us at Greenville to be able to gather and worship and to give you honor and glory, to be able to learn the great truths of your word, to be able to learn how to walk and be what you've called us to be, how to walk by faith through the grace you have shown us. And Father, we have been gifted by you. You've given us spiritual gifts so that we can fulfill the ministry you've called us to do. So we pray that you'll watch over Gridgecrest. You'll continue to strengthen it. You'll continue to bring it stronger together. And in the days ahead, you'll use them to have an impact on this community, but not only on this community, but on the world. Whether it be in the Philippines or in the other places they've encountered, bless what takes place here, Father. Raise up strong, godly people who love you with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.